Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. As you might have gathered, I am Corey Morgan. This is my weekly opportunity to bend your ear, rant, rave, talk to some guests, cover some subjects, and, and have a good time, or at least I enjoy it anyway. Sometimes the viewers enjoy it. Sometimes they get upset with me. Ah, you know, it doesn't bother me when you get upset. But, uh, you know, it gets our blood pressure going. It makes things interesting. Can't just always read the columns. This way you can kind of hear them. Uh, just, again, so much news, lots of dark news, sometimes lighter things as well to cover today. We're going to get into a bunch of that. i got a very interesting guest coming on. It is, for those who are watching live right now, it is the 60th anniversary today of the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy in, in Dallas that day. And, of course, there's lots of theories and ideas on how or who or what happened there that day. Still to this day, a lot of debate and things going on about it. So my guest is uh, Professor uh, Michelle... Gagne, I'm terrible with French names, but he's a professor and he's written on conspiracy theories in general. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about that. You know, I mean, why are there so many conspiracy theories on things in general? Why do people feel inclined to believe some of them when there's very shaky evidence? Or why are people so quick to dismiss them if, if, if uh, sometimes they're real? It's, it's a hard thing. But, you know, with the Internet, it's a whole new challenge on trying to keep up with truth from fiction. All right. So I'm going to get it going on one of my truths. And uh, how I tell you how I spent my weekend. So one of the best ways to get me to do something is to tell me I can't do it. That's just my stubborn, pugnacious nature. So thus, I found myself riding the LRT in Edmonton last Sunday when I didn't really need to use it to get anywhere. You see, the Edmonton Transit Service, which goes by ETS, put out a statement a little while ago to media outlets that said media would be banned from public transit facilities unless they sought and got permission to go there first. Now, being a unionized gang, of course, you could only get permission from 9 to 5 on weekdays from these guys. So if there were any events that needed coverage and they happened uh, to be happening in the evenings or the weekends, I guess the press wouldn't be allowed to report on it. The requirement's ridiculous. It's a clear violation of freedom of the press. The Canadian Constitution Foundation immediately released a statement saying they're going to take ETS to court if they don't back off on this. Higher-ups within Edmonton City Hall, they scrambled to respond, and they claimed there was no such restriction placed on media. People just misunderstood the statement. Oh, I see. Well, let's have a look at the statement, then I'll read it to you and see if you misunderstand it or not. Here's the statement. It came under the heading, Media on ETS Property. It says, Media are required, required, not suggested, to notify the City of Edmonton prior to reporting, filming, or conducting business on ETS property. This includes transit centers, LRT stations, stops along the Valley Line Southeast, and inside all buses or trains. If you wish to gain access to ETS property, please contact blah, blah, blah. How could this be misunderstood? It was pretty clear. They're saying media needs their permission to go on uh, public property and do its job. Now, the reason ETS wants to keep us from reporting on transit property is pretty obvious. As with most major cities, Edmonton's transit systems turned into a dystopian, addict-ridden nightmare. Riding had become unpleasant at best and outright dangerous at worst. Edmonton police at one point even recommended people avoid using transit. Now, like all good bureaucracies, rather than fixing the problem, the first instinct on the part of the pointy-headed little bureaucrats was to cover it up, and that meant banning the press. Former Western Standard reporter Arthur Green used to drive them nuts. He made it a personal mission to expose the attic-fueled mayhem happening in Edmonton's downtown and on the transit systems. He constantly embarrassed ETS as he posted photos and video of some of the horrific scenes happening on transit facilities. Green's photos, they were often actually pretty tough to view as he highlighted the human misery and waste happening on city streets and transit lines, but they needed to be seen. Rest assured, Arthur's work it was part of what inspired the idiotic attempt 
attempt by ETS to control the press on public transit. So when I read that ETS statement, my first thought was, who the hell do you guys think you are? And I knew I'd have to put their rules to the test. I mean, the sheer arrogance of these bureaucrats and thinking they could stop media was galling. They likely felt inspired, though, as they've watched the federal government beat on Canada's free press with Bill C-11 and C-18, so why can't civic governments do it too, right? It appeared to some paper pushers it's open season on press rights, and they wanted to pile on. I tweeted out I'd be riding on city transit and live-tweeted my actions as I rode on and reported it on the conditions on the train and in the facilities. I didn't really expect EDS to do anything about it, and they didn't. Their requirement for permission was just a bluff. Bluster. Now let's get on to the ironic part of this story. I'm happy to report, actually, when I wrote it, things have actually improved quite a bit on Edmonton Transit Lines. Yes, I saw addicts. I smelled urine. I saw property damage. I witnessed a seemingly endless line of tents and makeshift shelters built along the line near Stadium Station. They, they do have some serious issues to deal with. But I also saw a very visible presence of security guards, peace officers, cleaning crews, and police at the stations. I mean, one young lady was being arrested when I went by, but at least they're doing their job. The platforms and the trains were actually relatively clean, despite the smell, and efforts were being made to keep it so. Now, it was a Sunday afternoon. I might have been seeing things at their best, but all the same, ETS and Edmonton authorities were clearly trying to keep transit safe and clean. Now, if I'd been blocked from going on transit or if I'd have listened to them, I wouldn't have been able to report this good news. That's the great irony of it all. They don't allow us to report on the good things either. At least they'd like to stop it. The reason they were making such efforts was due to the work of Arthur Green and other journalists who were willing to cover the disorder and issues on Edmonton Transit System. Rest assured, the powers that be would have preferred to just ignore the issue if they could. Free and unfettered media holds governments accountable. They bring issues into the living rooms of citizens who wouldn't have been able to see what's going on otherwise. I mean, most people never realized the mayhem happening in transit until they saw the images and saw the stories about it in the media. Then they demanded politicians do something about it. Media is financially embattled right now by changing times and politically threatened by authoritarian politicians and bureaucrats. We don't and won't give up easily. If the pressures continue as they have, though, we're going to lose more access to unfiltered information and news, and our entire democracy could then be threatened. So be sure to speak up loudly when arrogant and dimwitted bureaucrats, such as those at the ETS, try to block free media, because if they get away with it, we all suffer from it. All right, that's what got me up and going. And as I said, I survived the ride on the train without being stabbed or shot or anything of the sort. I really was actually impressed that there's definitely a visible security presence and efforts to keep things clean. So good on them. They got more to do, but it's a good start. And I'm happy to report good stuff now and then. Let's see what else is going on out there in the news world with our news editor, Dave Naylor. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Uh, very busy, Corey. You, you know what you should do? You should try going for a ride on the Calgary LRT. Compare the two. Uh, yeah, it's time for one. I haven't ridden on it in quite a while. It was pretty gnarly the last time, but maybe Calgary's has improved as well. I'll, I'll have to find some time and pop on there and have a look. There you go. Uh, breaking news at the moment, uh, Corey, coming out of uh, uh, the border crossing from uh, Niagara Falls into the United States, city of Buffalo. There appears to have been a terrorist attack, a car full of explosives driving from Canada hit the U.S. border guards, causing what appears to be a big explosion. Fox is reporting that two people were killed uh, in the blast. Uh, uh, not sure what the, if they were both in the car or there was a, a border people killed. Uh, it's prompted an immediate border clampdown. All the four bridges from uh, Ontario into New York uh, State have been uh, shut down. On the U.S. side, they're now being guarded by the U.S. anti-terrorism uh, force. FBI is uh, already at the scene in Buffalo, and uh, I don't know. Meeting, uh, 
uh, leading the know. investigation. Well, this comes just a week or so, Corey. You know, uh, our car is right there. My car is right there. Uh, it was reported, oh uh, uh, warned the Canadian government that uh, a terrorist attack could happen in Calgary. and or something. I have no idea. And it was uh, that is my car right there. sloughed off by yeah, the gray one. Uh, Canadian officials. It appears uh, mm. the UK government may have been true, so we're going to keep an eye on that, uh, obviously, all day as uh, developments occur. Uh, Other this. stories, the uh, Alberta government has responded to the fiscal update yeah, yesterday, and uh, just as as you can imagine, they're uh, not overly impressed. Big announcement on healthcare in Alberta this morning, where the province is, is going to allow licensed practical nurses to uh, operate their own clinics. Uh, the uh, the licensed practical nurses are sort of more trained uh, than regular nurses and, in fact, uh, do about 80% of what a doctor can do. Uh, so they're going to allow uh, uh, those people with the right training to open up uh, uh, their own offices. Uh, story still reverberating uh, from yesterday where uh, Calgary police have now apologized to the family of uh, two uh, brothers, one only 14 years old, the other 18, who were arrested last week for the uh, the brazen daylight shooting up near uh, uh, Marlborough Park? Uh, I guess they got the wrong guys and uh, and uh, have apologized. Uh, you know, Corey, in my 30 years or so of covering uh, crime in Calgary, I've never seen anything uh, uh, quite like that uh, apology uh, yesterday. So yeah, very busy morning, Corey. And uh, uh, like I said, we'll keep track of the uh, the New York. Uh, uh, Niagara Falls terror incident uh, and update it minute by minute. Right on. Well, I'll let you get back to uh, following those things and getting that news up there as it breaks. Dave, I appreciate the update and I'll uh, talk to you after the show. Thanks, Roy. That is our news editor, Dave Naylor. As you see, stuff is breaking. Watch the Western Standard News site. You know, keep it on the side of your screen, of course, while this show's going. Uh, but we do cover things as they are unfolding. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack with what's going on in New York. It, it, it sounds like, uh, yeah, that's the first I'd heard now that uh, perhaps two people are dead. We don't know what happened, though. It, it, was it a, a propane tank that went off? Was it a crazed terrorist? Was it an individual? We don't know. We're going to find out, but things like this could certainly snowball into something much, much worse. It's of great concern. So westernstandard.news, guys, that's where you will find it. We put those stories up as soon as they hit. And uh, hey, the reason we can do it is because you guys subscribe. We're an independent outlet. Those of you who have subscribed already, thank you very much. If you haven't yet, get on there, guys. Westernstandard.news slash membership, $9.99 a month, $100 a year. That's the way we can cover these stories. That's the way I can ride trains up and down and complain about transit service. And uh, that's the way we can keep media independent and covering those stories. All right. Uh, let's see. Just to cover a bit of that, you know, I see some of the discussion that came up with Dave mentioned. Uh, uh, Premier Smith has said she, she's going to have nurse practitioners allowing it so they can open clinics and do things. And, of course, the immediate response from Wild Rose, and, and, and Wild Rose is a commenter on here who's made this comment before quite often. Great private for profit healthcare. You know, you don't even know what the story is yet. But the initial instinct is, oh my God, private for profit healthcare. Well, a couple of things. There's nothing wrong with that. It's already here. What we're talking about is exactly what a private doctor does. When you go to the clinic, you go to the doctor, that doctor's paying the lease, that doctor's paying the nurses, that doctor's running a business, and that doctor takes a profit. It's just all publicly funded. So this nurse practitioner thing would be the exact same thing except it would be a nurse practitioner rather than a full-out physician. So why would we oppose that? What's the problem with that? Now, there could be things to be debatable. 
would worry that perhaps the practitioner might uh, have a diagnosis uh, slip by that a full doctor, you know, there's things, there's reasons that we could uh, discuss that. But to dismiss it immediately as if it's a problem because somebody might make a profit, I'm sorry, but that's how healthcare reform gets stunted. That's how we don't have discussions to make better care. Look, our waiting lists are among the worst in the world. When you look at the 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 uh, uh, waiting lists, the cost for healthcare versus the outcomes, we measure really poorly worldwide on all fronts. We got fantastic healthcare providers once you can get in, but you could be very ill and waiting a long time to get there. Now, we also know, most of us know, there's a whole lot of things that people go to a doctor's office for and they don't necessarily need to see a doctor. How many times do you need to see a full-out physician and tie it up at the emergency room or a doctor's office when your kid has the sniffles? When you have a mole you think might need further looking at? Or a few other things. I mean, I have to get my driver's license renewed every two years because it's a class four. I've got to get a driver's physical for it. It's really pretty basic. It's just checking me out to see if I've got any very evident heart conditions or health issues or breathing problems, things like that, and, and checking my eyesight. Now, do we necessarily need a full-out physician to do that. No, I, I say we don't. And because this way, I'm not taking away the time from a physician with my driver's test. That physician could be looking at somebody with a potentially more serious uh, need or condition. Uh, Donna Jean, a commenter saying, doctors make mistakes too, and nurse practitioners are great at it. That's right. I mean, there's no assurance. And I mean, with good training, you know, if somebody comes into something that's beyond the ability of a nurse practitioner, presumably that practitioner is going to say, whoa, okay, you need to see somebody with more uh, ability, you know, and training to deal with that specialized need. But that's often the case with a doctor as well. I mean, you see a general practitioner and they find something that appears to be, you know, far beyond what you would see in the regular clinic. They don't treat it there. They'll determine your best person to uh, refer you to, whether it's a cardiologist or an oncologist, you know, if they've seen something that's of strong concern and they will send you in that direction. So this is a new level. I think it's quite creative. It's a way that we can shorten those waiting lists and still make sure everybody's getting good coverage for their health because that's what we all want in the end. So let's not be fearful of changes just because somebody has a private shingle hanging in front of a place. It's still not coming out of your pocket. You're still covered by your Alberta Health Services card. Don't sweat it. Don't dismiss every innovation as if it's a move towards a privatization. But you know what? We do need to privatize some stuff, and I hope Smith goes there later. But we'll leave that for another discussion. It's time to get on to our guest, and it's very timely with uh, Professor uh, Michel Gagné, and he's written some stuff on conspiracy theories on a couple of sites. It's, it's fantastic, and the timing is good. So uh, thank you very much for joining the, the show today, uh, Michel. Hi, Corey. It's nice to be here. So I, I said off the top of the show, I mean, right, it happens to be the 60th anniversary, I believe, today of the, of the JK, JFK assassination. And, and that's sort of the, the granddaddy of, of conspiracy theories. It's been going on 60 years and, and there still doesn't feel a lot of people don't feel it's resolved. I wasn't born when it started, but I have to tell you, I got drawn into it when I was in university. I spent about 15, 20 years believing the CIA killed Kennedy. That led me to believe in a number of other theories that eventually turned out to be false. So I'm happy to say I'm out of the rabbit hole, but it uh, it takes a while. It takes a lot of effort to think critically to be able to get away from uh, these very kind of uh, corroding myths that our society embraces far too easily. Yeah, well, we, we seem to have... 
I, I, I believe, I mean, and you break it down into that in your article, which was fantastic too, but just some of the things to watch for in a, in a conspiracy that perhaps isn't a, a legitimate one or isn't well-founded, but we, we seem to have an instinct. If, if we see something unusual, we just want to fill the void. We want to fill the question marks kind of with our own uh, interpretation of things, even if it's not sourced, or we'll take somebody else's interpretation without looking more deeply, and, and that can turn a small conspiracy into a large one. Yeah, that's true. Uh, a lot of uh, smarter people than me, a lot of people in uh, social scientific research have highlighted some of the major elements that make us want to believe in conspiracy theories. One of the, the ones that tends to be universal is a feeling of powerlessness. Uh, you can be either uh, unemployed or you could be Donald Trump. If you believe that somehow you're losing power or you're being shut out of power, uh, you're more likely to believe that there's some nefarious group uh, that is doing this behind your back. Uh, our cultural ideologies tend to influence what kind of conspiracy theory we're likely to believe in. Uh, the groups we associate with, sometimes because our friends believe it, we're part of an echo chamber that we believe that it must be true if everyone else is repeating it. And then I think just the regular zeitgeist, you know, every generation or so, there are issues that trouble us more than our ancestors or our children will. I know for me, it was nuclear war when I was young. Today, it seems to be climate change or vaccines. So depending on what uh, what events uh, struck you as odd, suspicious in your youth, uh, particularly in your youth, we often call these um, uh, flashbulb memories. For me, it was the Reagan assassination attempt in 1981. But for many people, it's the Kennedy assassination or 9-11 or some of these other events. Yeah, well, uh, so... We've got, I'll kind of circle back to the Kennedy one. I want to talk a little bit about more uh, others soon. But I mean, I just recently actually was listening to a different podcast. It sounds like Rob Reiner has done a long series of podcasts. Now, a person of pretty high profile, pretty high reach. And he goes right on to the second and third shooter theories. He's confident that really happened. And he lays it out over a matter of a number of hours. So we're not talking about an obscure uh, person from years ago with a bunch of, you know, old uh, folders they're holding in the air now. We've got contemporary celebrities that are still propagating, I guess, uh, their interpretations of what happened in those events back then. And uh, I, I personally, I think, makes some pretty large leaps of logic. Oh, definitely. Uh, this is one of the most popular ones. Uh, every every 10 years or so, Gallup takes a poll on this. And it turns out that among Americans, between 60 and 70 percent of people generally believe in some kind of conspiracy. Mind you, they don't necessarily agree on what kind that is. Uh, someone like John Kerry still has claimed that he believes the Cubans were involved in it. We know that President Johnson believed the Cubans were involved. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy uh, believed that the Ku Klux Klan or some right-wing group was involved. Even Jack Ruby, who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, believed that they uh, that some anti-Semites were trying to blame this on the Jews. So everybody has their pet theory. And at the end of the day, because it is such a shocking event that's hard to explain, many people are not satisfied with this idea that a, a lone nut or, or at least a, an emotionally uh, unstable person would be able to kill the most powerful man in the world. But Lee Harvey Oswald was not that different than a lot of the people who are school shooters today or, or other uh, perpetrators. I think of the Tsarnaev brothers who, who caused the Boston bombing, uh, marathon bombing a few years ago. A lot of these things are caused by conspiracy belief. I don't want to say that conspiracy believers are violent. Most of them are not. But they can lead to a great deal of either violence or self-harm, uh, ostracization, uh, depression, certainly. Uh, it's, not, it's, not a healthy, it's not a healthy way to live.
No, no, well, certainly not. And as you point out, I mean, some real conspiracies exist. You, you have that in your article. It's on the Aristotle, Aristotle Foundation, by the way, uh, in, in full. And you did one for the Western Standard as well. But, uh, for example, Watergate, that was a, a real conspiracy. It was really underhanded. It was really government involvement. Uh, but it was all quite exposed in the end. Yeah. Or, or think of the sponsorship scandal. You know, I live in Montreal. I lived through the 1995 referendum. Uh, the federal government gave a lot of money to advertisement agencies uh, against the current laws of Quebec at that time, the referendum laws. And what did those people do with it? They bought yachts. They spent they spent it on their debts or on restaurant dining. They didn't actually do what they were asked to do. And in the end, we can see how conspiring is not something that's very successful when a large group of people do it and they're not part of some network. I mean, the CIA can kill people and keep a lid on it, at least for some time. But when you ask a number of people in different organizations to conspire together, the odds are it's not going to work out very well. And it didn't work out for President Nixon uh, either. Yeah, well, I mean, just speaking anecdotally, I mean, if you have a circle of 10 friends and you try to keep a secret, all 10 of you know, chances are within a week or two, it's going to spread well outside of that circle. I mean, people aren't really that good at keeping secrets. Uh, and when some of these conspiracies talk about it, as many as hundreds or even thousands of people keeping a secret, it, it just starts to defy belief a little bit. Yeah, I was interviewing for my podcast, uh, Paranoid Planet. Uh, I was interviewing a filmmaker called James Lambert. Uh, and he pointed out that, you know, when you start involving multiple generations in one single conspiracy, that's when really you're, you're, you're killing the you're killing it with uh, bad logic, because how could you predict how the next generation will uh, will do in terms of either covering up or revealing some some dark secret? So uh, there's a number of ways, and I point these out in my article, you don't have to be an expert in science or history to debunk a conspiracy theory. You need to be equipped with the right kind of logic. And sometimes circular reasoning or straw man fallacies, you know, creating a very simplistic uh, version of the theory you're trying to debunk so that it's easier to, uh, to set it aflame, so to speak, uh, then those are you know, indicators that a conspiracy theory is likely not believable. The more it is like a Hollywood film script, the less likely it is to be true. Well, and there's one stubborn one. I just came off a speaking tour I was doing on weekends, and twice at two different stops, we had people come up and ask the question about the old chemtrails, uh, which is contrails from jets you see in the sky. And, and you know, I've talked to people. They're not necessarily foolish people. They're lucid. They're, they're typically rational. But somehow they believe that, again, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pilots and baggage workers and chemists and who knows else are all tied in with the government, and they're trying to poison us through... Uh, spray coming from jets and planes above us. It, it just seems to defy when I talk to this person. I really, this is not a foolish person, yet they're clinging to something that just seems so irrational. I, I don't understand how it spreads like that. Well, I think we live in an age where we're very suspicious of people in authority. And that's that's unfortunate. I mean, we should be skeptical. People in authority are still humans. And if they're given the chance, they might be corrupt. They might do something illegal. Uh, but ultimately, if we start with a default assumption that scientists, uh, professors, uh, journalists like yourself are deliberately part of some larger scheme, then uh, we're not even giving ourselves a chance to look for truth. We start with the assumption that everything happens behind closed doors by some furtive force that uh, we we can only identify with words like oligarchy or, or patriarchy or military industrial complex. At the end of the day, these words don't mean anything. Yeah, well, one of the things to watch for as well, you pointed out, was was an assumption of hyper-competence. I mean, when we look at government, this is the same sort of person who would sit and say, look, I feel Trudeau's a fool and his cabinet's weak and, and the bureaucrats are incompetent. 
but somehow they're pulling off a massive conspiracy to do such and such. Well, you've got a co conflict of your logic going on right there. It's one of the things perhaps people should watch for. Don't assume that the government's really that good at being able to keep a conspiracy like this. What's interesting is often that same line, uh, th those two contradictory points are made by the same people, mm -hmm. that somehow the conspirators are hyper-competent so they can use laser beams or they can somehow brainwash us through the media. But at the same time, they are so uh, incompetent that they leave this breadcrumb of, of evidence, supposedly, all over the place. You know, I have a story on my podcast this week about a woman called Julianne Mercer who thought she saw Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald sneaking a rifle onto the grassy knoll. Well, if they did that, they were profoundly stupid because they're doing this in broad daylight where they could get arrested before they even get their caper uh, pulled off. So, uh, yeah, it's not just the fact about hypercompetence. It's the contradictory ways that hypercompetence is often used. Yeah, well, and I harbor a good deal of mistrust of government, and that's part and of And you should. I traffic in it, and they give me lots to work with. But at the same time, I mean, I, I don't always assume every move is, is malignant, but some of the things like we could dismiss, you know, the moon landing theory. Fine, people are, are very dedicated to feeling it was fake, but there's not too much harm done in a sense of, of holding on to that one. But ones that worry me sometimes are medical conspiracies, the ones where they say, oh, pharmaceutical companies and doctors are hiding the cure for cancer because they make more money treating people with cancer. And, uh, you know, that takes the assumption that these doctors will die and let their family members die and these pharmaceutical heads will die rather than let up the secret of this cure for cancer they're hiding. I mean, it just, again, defies sense. But the thing that gets me is it might encourage people to avoid treatment for something that may be very treatable. And that's when it moves into the realm of the dangerous. Yeah, I'm not a medical expert, but you know, I've I've looked into this enough to see that there's no evidence, for example, that vaccines cause autism. And yet we have a candidate right now, or the Americans have a candidate running for, for president, you no, know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who says that they do, who believe that uh, the COVID vaccines were uh, were some kind of a racket, and even that uh, the CIA murdered his uncle. So uh, even people in very high places can believe this. But I have to say that as far as vaccines go, there, we have to understand the psychology of vaccines is not like other medicine. You go to the hospital, you get treated once you're sick. Vaccines are a form of uh, therapy, a medical therapy that we use before we're sick. So it's very counterintuitive. And I think that's why a lot of people refers, refuse to take a vaccine because they would rather live with the evil that they know, say COVID, and rather than the evil that they don't know or that they presume, which is mercury in, in the, in uh, presumably mercury or other toxins in the vaccines. So um, the fact that Knowledge has become so complex on issues like healthcare uh, feeds into um, the suspicions that people have because there's just not enough time for most of us to get educated on these subjects. And that's why I say we do need to defer to experts, uh, maybe not, you know, without uh, some skepticism, but perhaps we've gone too far in thinking that every person is their own expert, you know, just like, uh, you know, the roots of Protest Protestantism said that every man is his own priest, but you have to have also some knowledge to be able to make affirmations. Yeah, well, and, and we get, as you said, that the vaccines cause autism, one, for example, or I see a commenter saying the polio vaccine was a real vaccine. So a lot of people have faith in the older vaccines, but that conspiracy theory of the autism, which was very heavily disproven over years and years, multiple studies, lots of times, that wasn't over the COVID vaccine, that was over the MMR vaccines that have been used for a long, long time. Uh, that, that That's quite different than what was applied now when we get into COVID, which is a newer vaccine. And uh, people, when, when you're getting 
coerced into taking it, I can understand people's misgivings and fears and, and when it hasn't been as long established as some of the other uh, vaccinations. So, I mean, there's, there's some difference, but that mistrust can, can lead to issues, of course. That's true. Look, I have a personal anecdote about this, and that is when the vaccines were available for people 50 years and older, at the time I was about 48, and I couldn't wait to actually get my shot because I want to be able to have the freedom to go to the places where there were vaccine mandates. I went three or four times to get the AstraZeneca shot, but every time I went, they were out of doses. So I ended up getting the Pfizer, but between the time that I tried to get the AstraZeneca to the time that I got the Pfizer, which was believed to be safer, uh, I had some serious health issues, uh, chest pains that turned out to be not cardiac, but at the time I believe they were, it had to do with my gallbladder. So had I actually had these chest pains after taking the AstraZeneca, I might be one of those people right now thinking that the vaccines made me sick. So sometimes there's confirmation bias, other things might make us ill, or in, there might be that we have a particular reaction to the vaccines that millions of people will not have. And at the time of COVID, I think there was a, uh, there was a certain balancing act to do. Um, of course, you know, uh, many people, including myself, didn't feel comfortable with, with the government um, coercing. But at the same time, we had a health scare in which most people want to get back to normal. And vaccines, I believe, were a way to get back to normal, but many decisions were taken uh, very quickly because time was short. You know, it's yeah. like a pregnancy. You only have nine months to decide if you're keeping the child or not. Uh, so as far as vaccines go, we only had a few months to determine uh, what products to put on the market. Yeah, and, and, and people had, again, uh, uh, you know, concerns about rushes to vaccines. I mean, I, I just recently read a story about a potential vaccine that may... Uh, uh, help with the uh, what am I thinking? It Alzheimer's disease. Actually, yeah. it's interesting. It's, it's a protein based thing, but the first experiments with it, they found they were causing brain swelling and trouble with people when they were starting human trials. So they backed off and had to change it. But I'm just saying that it, it, you can't fully dismiss people's concerns with a rushed vaccine or because vaccines can have some serious consequences. Definitely. Definitely. And I think the biggest problem is that uh, there was kind of a shutdown of debate. Uh, the media and, and the government uh, the Trudeau government, you know, were not really allowing a full conversation on this uh, because they didn't want to um, uh, to feed conspiracy theories. But at the same time, I think uh, more suspicion was fed because people didn't feel they had any platform for sharing their views. So perhaps what could have happened or should have happened is that people who had a better grasp of the issue, uh, scientists, sociologists, economists, should have been given more room to debate this publicly so that the person on the street didn't feel that they had to go to some obscure website uh, to get some, some information that may or may not have been useful to them. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to see more and more as I think as we see, uh, well, the, the sharing of information through social media and uh, authoritarian governments, unfortunately, doing things that cause more mistrust between people and them. So the, the theories will uh, continue. But I mean, we, we just have to always be on guard and see which theories perhaps have some merit to them and which are, well, and many are a lot of bunk, unfortunately. Uh, so where can we find more information about your work and, and your articles and such? Well, there's the Aristotle Foundation, where you're going to find the article I published this week. Uh, I also wrote a book recently, uh, last year, called Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination. It's essentially a critical thinking handbook, but it's it's pretty thick, as most Kennedy books go. Uh, but I think it's accessible for anybody with at least a high school education. And then I have my podcast, which is a little bit more uh, a popular level. It's called Paranoid Planet, and the website is www.paranoidplanet.ca. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, well, we'll keep a watch for, for more articles from you then, Professor. 
Thank you, Corey. It was uh, great to have uh, to be on your show. Great, thanks. So yes, the guys, I know I see through the commenters, it's got some folks stirred up. Here comes one of the usual responses from commenter Jim uh, Duskus. Morgan, are you a shill for Big Pharma? Yes, yes. Can't you tell from the, you know, the, the, the luxury car I drive? Oh no, I drive a Hyundai. Actually, it's not vaccines I push, Jim. It's the little blue pill, but due to the CRTC regulations, I can't stand up and show you how effective it's been for me. Thus, uh, you know, the millions that Big Pharma gave me haven't worked out. I'll just have to have it uh, go to online reviews as to how well it's done. Come on, guys. Just because I'm talking about these things doesn't mean I'm a shill for this, a shill for that. We can have critical discussions on things. And that's what... Uh, Michelle was kind of saying that was part of the problem that happened over the pandemic. Everything was rushed and people were shutting down discussion and that causes more mistrust. That causes people to dig their heels in and get more concerned about things. I'm not dismissing every concern with the COVID vaccines by any means. I got vaccinated and crossed the border a few years ago and I remember some people going wild on my show about that. You see, you see, you're one of them. Well, no, I wanted to cross the border and no, I wasn't as worried about it as others. Hey, paradoxically, you drive a Hyundai as well. Okay. Uh, but it, just because I chose to get it doesn't mean I support the coercion of others getting it. I've always supported the free choice of people. Watch for the difference, guys. It's not all or nothing. As long as there's choice and discourse, then we shouldn't have a problem. And, and that's why, you know, we have these discussions on this show. You don't have to agree with everything we're talking about, but we're having the conversation on it. And people will make their own conclusions and determinations from that. So... Yeah, I know not everybody's going to agree, but I mean, there, there's, as we said, there's all kinds of conspiracies or there's urban legends. Those are big ones. I remember when I was going to school, I think it was uh, Hubba Bubba that supposedly had spider eggs in it. Um, and Jim Desk is saying there was no choice. Yeah, Jim, I, I agree. I think coercion isn't choice. You see, I, I, I have always vehemently and regularly said that. I've said it's wrong to make a person have to choose between keeping their job and getting a vaccination. It's wrong to make a person choose between going to a school and getting a vaccination. It's wrong to make a person choose between getting a vaccination and traveling to see friends, loved ones, or go to places or take part in sports. I've always said all those things, Jim. Yet when I talk about one thing you don't like, you say, are you a shill for big pharma? Well, no, I'm not, Jim. I don't have enough money for that. But either way, it was a good discussion. If you want to find more, you know, again, let's have the discussion. That's what we're about. It really is. Don't have to agree with me. And as we see, lots of people often don't. All right, let's discuss some of the other stupid crap going on out there. There's always lots. And uh, we've had an interesting bill. It's kind of making the news right now because it's not even so much what's in the bill, but it, the way the politics are being played around it that shows how sick and broken our government is. So it's Bill C-234. It was a private member's bill. And those things don't often actually make it all the way through. And... Uh, this one is a bill that would basically exempt farm, farmers from the carbon tax for grain dryers, propane, things like that. It's costing us. It's costing all the way down to our uh, food and, and everything else we get from our, our agricultural producers and the rest. And uh, this is a good bill. And it passed, you know, and it says, what, uh, when it voted through Parliament, 176 in favor, or even a few Liberal MPs voted in favor of it. You know, this is another carbon tax car vote is what it would be. Uh, of course, every conservative member did. NDP and Bloc did as well, and even the Green. So it looked like this bill was going to make it through. It was going to become another exemption for the carbon tax for our food producers. It would save us some money getting food to the table, save our farmers uh, some money. Well, not quite. What's happening now? Trudeau's trying to stop it through the Senate. So while he allowed it through Parliament or couldn't stop it, he's trying to stop it in the Senate. And how's he doing it? He's stacking the Senate. He's appointed three more senators. He just stuffs them in there. 
And then like little barking seals, they will vote however they're told. And they see there's one of the BS. This isn't a conspiracy. This is just a government lie. Let's talk about that. Oh, liberal senators are now independent. Yeah, right. Look at their behavior. They will vote as they're told. We saw that repeatedly with Paula Simons, who drives me nuts with her hypocrisy in there. She's supposedly supposed to represent Albertans in the Senate. And I tell you what, I really respect Simons because she did some fantastic uh, columns on, on some of the terrible stuff in, in child welfare cases in Edmonton in the past when she was a journalist. But once she got appointed to the Senate, she became Trudeau's little gal in there, and she does what she's told, even though they say independent. Well, these three new independent senators, how do you think they're going to vote on this carbon tax uh, bill that's going through the Senate? They're going to shut it out. Now, it's just my prediction. It hasn't happened yet at this point. But uh, guys, they're going to shut it down. So again, it shows the abuse and waste in our system. I mean, the unelected, the totally appointed by Trudeau ones, those barking seals in Senate, will get to shut down a bill that's gone through every other level of parliament because Justin doesn't want yet another embarrassment. <laughs> like he can avoid them, right? Um, let's see, from Momzilla, a commenter saying the car explosion on the, the Peace Bridge. Yeah, we, we talked about that earlier. Uh, all bridges are closed while the FBI, FBI investigates. Yeah, so for people watching live, I guess if you're Ontario, you're thinking across the border, you aren't going to make it on any land crossings. Probably, I bet, in the next couple of days when it's something this serious. It's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that. Uh, Paradoxy said triple E, you know, there's a term that I, we don't hear often enough anymore. And that stood for, that was way back in the reform days. That was the big call out. There were farmers who carved that into fields out here in Western Canada. It stands for Senate reform, which is equal, effective and elected, which would mean, say, for example, I don't know, every province and territory got three senators each making it equal. And if it was elected, they would be elected. That E stands for itself. They would become effective if those other two E's came about, that would be automatic. But as it is, it's just a pasture for old men and women to uh, for political patronage where you get a huge salary, a lot of giant pension for it. And it's appointment. You don't have to face the electorate for it. And you just do what you're told by the government once you're in there. Um, Paradox is saying, I'd be surprised if there's any border crossings open. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Any land crossings right now, they, they might be really. I imagine if they're open out here in the West or whatever, they're going really, really slowly. So all I can recommend to people watching this live is, you know, check. There's online things for border crossings. Uh, check with your news and things like that and, and, and make sure it, it is open for you. Um, Okay, let's see. Uh, the latest polling, speaking of Trudeau, you can see the desperation. And this is where we get dangerous in Canada. It really does. Trudeau's got his back against the wall. I keep thinking, and he keeps proving me wrong. I'm wrong sometimes. i got to admit it. And I know lots of people love pointing out when it happens. But that dingbat will not back down. He's in the toilet. He's not going to come back. This, The liberals are not going to win the next election under his inept leadership. But he will not go. And they are such a top-down, uh, subservient party, they won't rip him out of there. And I'm just looking at these polling numbers. If an election were held today, uh, conservatives would take 208 seats. Uh, the liberals would take 71. That's a drop of almost 90 seats. Uh, the bloc would probably be about the same. The NDP about the same. And the Green about the same. Like this is a collapse of support. This is going in the toilet. Now, someone to be fair, though, we could be unfortunately still, because Jagmeet, you know, he knows he's as close to power as he's ever going to get. He'll shore up this government no matter what. But... Uh, if he goes two more years, two more years in politics is a long time. Uh, Warren Kinsella, a person a lot of us love to hate, but he can make some valid points. He's worried that conservatives are peaking too fast. It's one thing to be this strong in support right now, but can you maintain that for two more years? It's politics. 
you're just all one aw crap away from suddenly dropping again 20 points in the polls. So the best time to be sitting in polls like this, of course, is a week or two before voting day, not potentially two years before it gets here. All the same, they're really nice numbers to see because this is a government that clearly Canadians have had enough of. And uh, it's, it's showing in those numbers. It's just whether or not they'll last. Now, and uh, yeah, and, and again, as they get desperate, Trudeau's going to do more desperate things to try and turn that around. I saw something on social media earlier today. Well, I participated in it. For those who follow me on Twitter, or X as it is now, I had some clown coming after me saying I was a settler. Right? You know, I'm getting so sick and tired of that settler crap, that settler colonial crap. And uh, I retweeted with some words that I can't say on this show because we do run on some cable channels. But I also said I'm not a settler. I was born in Canada. Cut it out. It's ridiculous because it is ridiculous and it's divisive and it's stupid. But either way, what got interesting for those who follow that type of social media, it went kind of viral. Um, his tweet at me, his ex at me, if you look up mine, Corey, Mor Corey B. Morgan on X, Corey B. Morgan on Twitter, uh, you you'll find it through there. It had, the last time I checked, over 350,000 impressions, his tweet, and it had 100 likes. That means of 350,000 people who saw what this twit put out there about us being settlers, only one in 3,500 thought, yeah, you know, I agree with you. And of it, at that point, there were 1,200 people who took the time to say, you're an idiot, and responded to him. It's called being ratioed on there. But you see, the reason it makes me happy, that's a large sampling. 350,000 people is a lot of people. We hear that stupid settler colonial language from academics. We hear it from politicians. We hear it from union leaders. We hear it from activists. And it sometimes gives the people the impression that this is a widespread point of view or that it's a reasonable one or it's large. It's not. It's only the view of the extreme. And we got to quit giving it credence. It's, 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 it's way out there. And it's wrong. It's right up there with basically what this person was saying, because what he was saying, what he said in his tweet was that only everybody who isn't Métis, First Nations, or Inuit, that's what he said, they're all settlers, automatically. You're all settlers. It's racism. It's exactly what that is. It's like anybody else saying, I got here first, go back where you came from. We don't accept that from people when they say that to new Canadians, or even worse, when they say it to Canadians who were born here, but they appear that they may be new Canadians. Yes, we're getting down to race again, guys. We don't accept people saying, go back where you came from in that case, because it is, it's bigoted, it's wrong. But we accept it when it comes from these hammerheads calling people settlers, even if they'd had three, four generations of family here. And how is that helping our society? How is that helping them? But you see, it drives into... Again, this was coming from a First Nations person, that sense of victimhood. Everything and anything wrong in my life is the settler's fault. It couldn't be me. Couldn't be that I didn't get out of bed in time to go to work. Couldn't be that I didn't uh, invest my money wisely. Look, the victim mentality holds people down. People really have been victims of things a lot of times, absolutely. But when you mire yourself in it, when you turn yourself into a chronic victim, there's a uh, Nico's been pulling out. Yeah, the, the, the tweet. Look at that. You know, 350,000 views. But when you turn yourself into that victim, you can't crawl out of it. You become a self-defeating person. And this, this, this settler stuff is not helping anybody at all. I mean, uh, let's look at, for an example, again, the Chinese. The Chinese were treated horrifically in Canada, terribly. Brought in for cheap labor to build a rail railway, abused under terrible working conditions, separated from their families, paid next to nothing. I mean, it was this close to being literal slave labor. And then when the railway was done, 
They found themselves on the West Coast. They were abused. They were practical pogroms. They were stuffed onto ships and deported. They were treated like crap. And there's been a lot of apologies for that treatment from the government and things since then. But look at the Chinese community today. Did they mire themselves in the victimhood because of that abuse? No. They, in fact, got the best revenge they could by succeeding. The Asian community in Canada is doing fantastic. If you look at statistically, if we're looking at ethnic breakdowns for high levels of education, high levels of compensation, business ownership, all of those measures, the Chinese are doing, you know, of, of generations in Canada doing fantastic because they didn't roll over themselves and say we're, we're victims and we're just going to piss and moan about it for the rest of our lives. They got up and kept working and I really, really respect them for that. Likewise with Japanese Canadians. If you go down to southern Alberta, there's a really cool thing you'll see out there. Southeast Alberta, lots of people with Japanese last names with an Asian appearance, yet they're farmers. And they talk with a southern Alberta prairie accent because they've been there for generations. But the reason they're down there by Tabor and uh, Tilly and all those areas is because... There was a great big internment camp in World War II. The Japanese were screwed. We stole their property, or I won't say we. I don't. That's a term I should stop using when it comes to it. the government at that time. Stole their property, stuffed them in there, and uh, kept them in those camps till the end of the war. When the war was over, they basically said, "Okay, you're all free now. Goodbye." They didn't even give them rides back to Vancouver where they took them from. So they were basically walking around the prairies. So they started working sugar beet farms as laborers and worked their butts off. And since then, the people, the descendants of them are very strong. Community members have large farms, businesses, a presence down there in Southeast Alberta. Same thing. They didn't mire themselves in their victimhood. They were very mistreated, very wronged. And there have been apologies for it. But they didn't leave themselves stuck there. So when we take on this settler colonial crap, and we keep blaming anything and everything, well, we don't, but some people do, anything and everything wrong in their lives with the settlers and with the colonials, and we're seeing it, of course, when it comes to Israel, too, but that's a separate discussion altogether. It's self-defeating, and it's just bringing everybody down and dividing us from each other. It's not helping anybody. So let's cut it out. Either way, I was very happy to see such a strong majority of people rejecting this ding-dong when he claimed that settler crap. People aren't taking it. Canadians are smarter than these extremists give us credit for, and uh, you know what? You know, Mr. Stanley uh, saying everything's racist today. Yeah, it feels like it. And that's why some people don't speak up. They fear being labeled with that because it's a terrible thing to be labeled with. But when it comes to this settler colonial stuff, speak up, push back, tell them to get stuffed. The majority is on your side. All right. That's all the time I've got today, guys. Thank you for coming in today. Even if I worked up all you guys and your conspiracy things, email me if you're mad about it and we can chat about it further. Uh, be sure again to take out a subscription with the Western Standard if you haven't already. Watch for the pipeline that's going to be coming on a little later. And yeah, watch for those top stories. There's a lot of stuff developing and unfolding as we speak right now. So thank you again for tuning in. We will see you all again next week at this time. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.